Hi, it's Steve Indig at Sport Law. Leave me a message. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Hey, Steve. It's Dina. You aren't going to believe what just came across my desk. We need to chat. Give me a call. Welcome to the latest episode of Sportopia. We're so excited to share our knowledge and have conversations about healthy human sport. This episode, you're not going to want to miss. We're talking about safe sport, an increasingly complex issue that the Canadian sports sector is having to grapple with. We're excited this week to welcome Will Russell, a member of our sport law team who has spent the last year supporting organizations as they navigate through the implementation of the Office of the Sport Integrity Commission. A new acronym that we need to add to sport is now OSIC, creating the framework for a sport, uh, a safe sport culture. So we're excited to have Will today. Before we bring him on, Dina, I'd like to know, you know, how are you? How's your week going? What's coming across your desk? Well, thank you for asking. And I have to say uh, what uh, what is keeping me up at night. I was up at uh, two o'clock this morning and uh, thinking about a couple of things. And I would say the one thing right now that's, uh, you know, keeping me hopeful is the work I'm doing around culture. And it seems to me that the topic of safe sport and culture is intertwined. So as you know, Steve, Sport Law launched the Sport Culture Index in conjunction with Logic, And we've done about uh, six projects in the last six months using the Culture Index. And the, the data that we're getting, the cultural data that we're getting is uh, enlightening. Sport leaders are really welcoming this. They're, they're using this as an opportunity to design processes to engage their their participants. So I'm really feeling the the connection to some of the bigger issues. The one we're going to talk about today is safe sport and and being able to measure culture, I think is something that's that's going to be really relevant uh, moving forward. What about you? What are you uh, what's come across your desk? (laughs) Well, as usual, about 100 different things, like few things of note, there's to talk about you know, governance is always a hot topic. People are routinely looking at how they operate. What does their board look like? Do they have the right people on the board? Are the are the right people electing those board members? So that's a very big topic right now, particularly in Ontario, where the legislation is changing. And all sport organizations that are incorporated in Ontario have about 18 months to transition to the new legislation. So that's taking up a lot of my time. I, I feel like the, the panic button is starting to have been hit on that particular project as people are realizing that that, that 18 months goes by really quickly. You know, in addition to that, there is a, a lot of safe sport safe sport queries. I think, I think organizations are still struggling, particularly at the provincial and club level or territorial level to say, how do we manage this? And I actually spoke to a client yesterday who said, we expect to make changes in six months and we expect to make changes in six months and we expect to make changes in six months. So it was it was interesting to hear them say that because I believe that's the case as well. And it's a good segue to our conversation today with Will. Uh, Will, welcome to the show. How did you get here? How did you become a sport law team member? Why did you want to do this? You, you <laughs> called me. And uh, you came, you were, the intent was for you to come on board. 
and to help me in my projects. And you absolutely haven't helped me one iota. Yeah, he's the safe sport guru now helping, you know, having supported so many sport organizations in complying with uh, OSIC and the UCCMS. There's two more acronyms for us to, uh, to share, Will. Yeah, so tell us more about, you know, you a little bit and safe sport. And what are the key things that you think our listeners need to know about this important topic. Well, thanks for having me today. Steve, you should have known from the start that maybe I was going to abandon you, given <laughs> the nature of your question. I don't know if you remember the question that we talked about when I called you was two and a half, three years ago, because I called you about a safe sport question, a more of a philosophical one about, you know, someone's in the hall of fame and what happens if something comes to light later on you know, let's say a hundred years afterwards, that attitudes they held do not reflect what we would say or as accepted cultural practices or expect expected value. So uh, you should have known based on that initial conversation that maybe I was going to gravitate to this safe sport space and, and abandon the governance and, and leave you in, in, in charge of that that side of the shop. So it's a, it's a testament, Will, to who you are. And, and Dina knows this as she and I have both been around for a long time within the sports system and, and creating your own niche as quickly as you have is a, is a, is a real testament to, to who you are and the work that you do. So what are you doing? Well, I kind of have, you know, foot in two camps. I do with a lot of the traditional hearing work. Um, but what has dominated my schedule the past probably eight months has been this, this issue of safe sport and looking at how we effectively develop uh, safe sport practice and implement them in particular, given the introduction of OSIC. And we'll stick with the acronym. We, we've had it introduced, so we'll stay with OSIC um, as this moves through the implementation phase and into the operational side of it um, and looking at this from a sector uh, to develop really is to build the boat as we're trying to sail it and really trying to fill those gaps as they come up. So, so talk about some of those gaps, Will. OSIC is obviously being implemented mainly at the national level. How's it affecting all the sport across the different sectors, club, province, territory, nationally? Very brief introduction. OSIC is a new third party that we've that has been introduced by the federal government, which is housed within the SDRCC. Um, and it's responsible for the administration of the UCCMS, or the Universal Code of Conduct to Prevent and Address Maltreatment in Sport. It is a mouthful. Well, through it, we're only going to say it once, we're staying with UCCMS going forward. So they're responsible for addressing complaints for a certain group of individuals, and, and as well as the uh, looking into cultural practice for organizations. So this was introduced in June of last year. As of yesterday, when I checked, there are 27 national sports who have signed on. And, you know, there's, it is a question as we move through, so it is a very valuable resource that we are introducing, but we are now just looking to how do we stick the landing? How do we make sure this is an effective process? Um, and a lot of, you know, we can go into the details of OSIC, but a lot of the questions that it has sparked is, what does it mean to be a member of, you know, pick a sport? What does it mean to be a member of hockey, volleyball, soccer, rugby, whatever discipline you're involved in? And what are the expectations of you at the club level? 
at the provincial level, at the national level, because uh, Dean and Steve, you may have a better idea of the numbers than I do. The national level, that high performance is actually a fairly small segment of what of sport within the country. I would mm-hmm. say my guess would be less than 10 percent. I don't know, you, 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 with your, your more experience in the sector, you'd have a better idea of the numbers on that. But there really is a big question about we have this fractured understanding of, of what the expectation of athletes is. And I think that's been the really big push right now to say, when I join a club in, in Yarmouth, in Victoria, in Sarnia, in Winnipeg, whatever it is, what is the standard I'm held to at, what, at whatever age or whatever participation level you're at? And then go from there. And that's been the big conversation from a philosophical side in, in this safe sport realm right now. Yeah, I think you're you're illustrating, you know, what is really hard, I think, for the reasonable person, the parent in a community to maybe understand. So, you know, there's roughly about 3000 or so national team athletes. The rest of the participants are in communities across the country. And so the the efforts that we're speaking to, you know, safe sport is like a catchphrase to talk about our commitment to ensure that the participants are not being harmed, right? I mean, in the end, it's just a way for us to gather all of that. And one of the things that that I think sometimes people forget is that sport has been you know, really grappling with this topic for about 25 years now. You know, it was Sheldon Kennedy that put the safe sport on the map. And let's give him credit for the efforts that he's put into uh, trying to educate people about things like abuse of power, things like bullying, harassment, discrimination, sexual abuse, right? So he has created this, this movement around respect in sport, was, was, which was meant to be a proactive way to mitigate maltreatment. So I'm curious, Will, you know, with all that you, you've been tracking, do you think there's a crisis right now in Canadian sport as it relates to maltreatment? One of the challenges we have right now, I think, let's start with, let's have the initial premise. Criminal activities, maltreatment, a lot of what we've had those still reside within the criminal justice system. And we need to make sure there's a clear and effective reporting and people are supported in coming forward to the authorities when there are criminal activities. Because I think that's one of the things that we, that, that I, I view that as not even the floor, but like those forms of maltreatment that do ride, rise to violations in the criminal code, we need to make sure that those have, are absolutely people are supported in being able to brought forward to the, the relevant authorities. In terms of the crisis, one of the challenges that we have is we struggle to have an objective measure of how many safe sport complaints we have in the country and where are the elements that we need to do better as a sport. I don't think there's any denying that there are challenges that we need to address, but it would be a question of how many safe sport complaints do we have in a year? And there is a range that they can fall into in terms of the disagreements between participants to the very, very serious on the criminal side. So we don't, that's one of the challenges we talk about crisis. What do we understand as being the numbers there? Where are our points that we need to address? And you, you touched on the inner logic, like how are we able to look and collect this data to make a better system? Mm-hmm. Will, you know, Steve, will... I'm going to jump in and then and turn to you in a moment. 
What seems really interesting to me, and I was, you know, I'm dating myself, as Steve all often reminds me, in 1991, you know, when Charles Dubbin released the the much talked about uh, Dubbin inquiry into doping in sport, you know, he he put his focus on on this. He said there was a moral crisis. It was less about doping. It was more about the morals and the lack of values in sport. And the structure of the Canadian Centre for Ethics in Sport, you know, that was the result of the inquiry made it really clear that we could we could get a handle on the number what's the prevalence of you know doping issues in sport so i i really appreciate and maybe i'll turn to the two lawyers here i appreciate you saying we don't really have a a, a full handle on the egregious you know issues of maltreatment but we we can do it with doping so what is the stumbling block in us being able to to really understand, you know, to your point, Will, what is the nature and the extent of the problem? Dean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. uh, You know, are there comparables between doping and maltreatment in sport? And of course, I think there are. I think, again, go back to the fundamentals. Why do people get involved in sport and particularly working in sport? It's because they love sport. They love to see people thrive, succeed, what that definition of success is could depend on the individual, as you've uh, we've all alluded to before. Ten percent of athletes are involved in high performance. Ninety percent are invo- involved in more recreational or house league. And even myself, getting into the sport career, I would probably say it was naive. I thought I'd be attending uh, games and tournaments and and being in cool environments. And and as we've talked about in previous podcasts, I spent most of my day on the phone on Zoom or in front of my computer typing something. And I wonder, you know, that crisis that we're talking about, is it again foundationally more to the entire system of sport? I I say routinely, and Will, I value your opinion on this, I, I say to sport administrators routinely, I don't think you have the experience or the expertise to deal with a sexual assault in sport. Where would you have learned that? Where would you have the experience to deal with that? And that's on top of privacy, image consent, accessibility, accommodation, all the different areas that we have to be responsible for in sport. So the creation of OSIC, I think a lot of organizations would say, great, take these complaints because we don't have the skill set or the experience or the expertise or the time, and that's a bigger conversation about the overall governance in sport, to manage these issues. I don't necessarily think, and and I don't want to spread a blanket over all complaints, but I'd like to think sport is not burying complaints and not hearing complaints, that they just really don't know what to do with them, and that's more of the concern. So the establishment of an independent third party like OSIC, I'm all for it. I do hope things get dealt with in a timely basis which will be really important for both the the complainant and the respondent and the overall integrity of the sports system. A couple of things on that. One, you can just imagine if you walked into a new job and they said, don't worry, you're safe here. And that's one of the challenges we have with safe sport is that a lot of what, you know, what I alluded or mentioned earlier, about there's not having any, you know, sexual assault or any other criminal activities within sport that should be a given. That should be the base on when we're really talking about safe sport and, you know, maybe or maybe it's been mislabeled in a way is that, you know, safety should be the minimum. Safety should be the expectation, the default. What we really want to have from safe sport is that people feel physically, emotionally, and psychologically secure within their sport environment so that they can succeed on whatever definition of success that may be. Because for most, 
it's going to be having a fun season. It's not going to be winning an Olympic medal or making the national team. It's be going out and enjoying time with their friends, playing a game or participating in an activity that they love. So I think in safe sport, we absolutely need to to have there's no place for maltreatment, but it needs to move beyond that to get to the point where we're thriving and enjoying sport because in lost in a lot of our conversations, and I'm certainly guilty of this at times, is sport's supposed to be fun. So it's before the enjoyment of it. And I that's where we're looking at safe, but we absolutely need to have that framework to address maltreatment. But we also want to make sure that everybody's enjoying themselves. So and with the introduction of OSIC, a lot of sports are having to look at their own frameworks and how they're going to address it because the OSIC only has a fairly narrow scope of jurisdiction and sports are going to have to maintain a third-party process to address issues that aren't within the designated parties that go to OSIC. So they're only going to be a small segment of participants in sport who go to OSIC and they only addresses certain types of misbehavior or allegations of, of maltreatment. Anything that falls outside of UCCMS is going to be have to heard within the, the sports sector. And a lot of the, the challenges I think that sports have and what we're trying to address is where do people go when they have an issue? Who do they speak to? Does it go to their board? Does it go to their CEO? Steve, to your point, a lot of times they're coming forward with issues that you know, are well outside the, the job description when maybe people got into sport of how to address it. So that's one of the big things that I, in, in my conversations is we need an education component and we need people to know what the ex, what's expected of them from a behavioral point, but then also they need to have a place that they can go and have confidence in the reporting. If we look at a lot of the incidents that have happened, you know, even dating back 20 years ago, or as recently as what happened in, in Chicago and the Blackhawks, there was no mechanism to bring that outside the organization to report. And that's an essential part of this safe sports structure that I believe is that people need to know I can submit a complaint here and it's not going to be heard internally, that that triage is going to be done outside. And that's an essential part of making robust system and having people have confidence that they're safe within sport. Yeah, I, you know, I really appreciate what you've just shared. Uh, Will, and it, and it seems to me that for examples of egregious maltreatment, the harmonized, coordinated approach through the OSIC that's basically really going to deal with the top shelf, right, with the national level athletes, and some sports are going to be able to bake it down to the community level. But, you know, I want to bring you back to what you said. In my experience, when I'm called in to do, uh, you know, risk mitigation or to to help parties that may have been, you know, at odds with each other, often it's not about, you know, what we would consider egregious maltreatment. It's often related to behaviors that run counter to my behaviors or val a clash of values, or, you know, maybe coaches who haven't been trained in understanding the motivations and the communication preferences of the athletes they're here to support. So, you know, as I listen to you, it feels like the real complexity here is less about those examples of egregious maltreatment. It's much more in the middle, you know, what Steve and I would call the mushy middle, the 50 shades of gray where, 
you know, it, it depends on someone's preference, someone's self-awareness, someone's motivations and values. And so my concern is that the narrative right now in the media is, is focusing, yes, on, on national level athletes, but the real rubber is going to hit the road around what are the expectations? You know, parents want to ensure that their kids are having a fun experience because let's agree, most of them aren't going to end up as a provincial or national level athlete. And so I'm curious, you know, Will, with all the work that you've done, and Steve, you're, you're right beside Will in this, what would you say to parents who are asking for our advice around how do I ensure that my kid's going to have a fun experience? I think a lot of the work I'm doing now is focused on you know, policy development, making sure we have a complaint management structure and a clear code of conduct. But that's only one element in creating a culture within a sport. You know, it's not something that that you can just say, well, we've made a policy. We've sent email it out to everybody. Our work here is done. Everybody go home. We've made a safe space for everybody. It's a constant commitment from the organization's perspective from the athlete's perspective, from the coach's perspective, that we all have these elements that we have to bring to bear to make a culture within sport. And it is a question of values. And, and one of the recent conversation I had was, we got as granular to say, well, like, why sport? Why whatever discipline you're involved with, soccer, rugby, hockey, whatever it is, why are you engaging in that? And to have those conversations and make sure there's alignment. So when we're talking about fun, and we want to make sure that our, our you know, we ha- have everybody on a team enjoying themselves. A lot of the tensions can arise when there's maybe a misalignment between is this a rec team? Are we trying to encourage skills and participation or are we focused on winning? And that can have a real influence and impact on the dynamic within the team and what you're trying to do. So I think, you know, safe sport is a a, a, a policy issue. It's a political issue, it's a legal issue, but it's both a cultural and a governance <clears throat> issue to have that clarity of purpose of what we are trying to do as organizations as different levels. Because our emphasis and our values in, within a team may shift depending on what we're trying to do. Um, and, and I think that misalignment, sort of those lower tier, those, those conflicts between personalities or individuals that don't fall into the maltreatment that really a lot arises when we have that misalignment of of purpose and value. Just this week, Will and Dina, I had a conversation with a with a client, and a comment was made to me that the high performance team will say publicly that their job is to win medals. That is their job to get it done to win medals, and I think that in stating that they are in in short saying we're going to do that at all costs and that may include the well-being of athletes so back to you dina this is a becomes a culture a culture conversation is that the way we want to present our sport is that the way we want to be known as is that the reputation we want to have and and dina you asked the question of you know what should we be doing in advance, and I'm guilty of it too. And I'd like to think I'm in the know, but I have kids 11 and nine who are involved in sport. And and what are those questions that we should be asking? What is your philosophy? What's your culture? What's your education? What's your screening process? 
what kind of insurance do you have? How much is it? What does it include? Was it, what does it exclude? And I actually remember my son who's now 11 and he's a quite a decent little baseball player for his age. And I remember when he was six or seven, he tried out for a team and about five minutes into the tryout, the coach came up to me and said, your, your son made it. And, and my reaction was pretty blank. And he said, aren't you happy? And I said, I'm not sure yet. I said, what is your philosophy? How much training is involved? How much skill development? How much are you about fun versus winning? Because my son is seven and I want him to love baseball and not hate it by the time he's nine or 10. And, and right, I can honestly say uh, for those of you who know my son and where he plays, he is having a fabulous experience. So it's been all very positive, but those are the questions we have to start asking. And it's uh it, it is part of that education process rather as you say will than just having a code of conduct and a discipline process and potentially an independent third party to help manage that yeah you know what's really interesting steve and so i'm a parent of three we're all parents on this on this call you know we don't go we we don't put our kids in school and put the same kind of rigor that you're speaking to here right like there's some implicit assumptions about the education sector where we feel we've extended trust. You know, these teachers have the training, they understand child development, they've been vetted. You know, there's a institution that, that's been that's being provided oversight through the principals and the trustees and everything else. So there's some sophistication, right, around that sector where we are extending trust to take care of our kids. And you're pointing to a giant gap which comes back to your point earlier, Steve, around the system of sport. You know, it was created and shaped really in the 1970s. And to my knowledge, it really hasn't modernized the way it needs to modernize if we're really going to ensure the safety and more importantly, to Will's point, that the kids are having a fun experience. So, you know, you were asking me about culture. And for those who, you know, I like to start with definition, culture is the the, the beliefs right? And the values and our practices. And we, we exchange information and knowledge and, and, and it's what we reward. So implicitly in sport, we reward outcomes like medals and we monitor financial performance. And so what sport law has been advocating for is a new triple bottom line. Beyond money and medals, we want to measure the morals that exist within the culture. And so how do we do that? Well, we have to kind of assess, well, what are the things in which we're going to have values or we're going to value? So things like trust, things like belonging, things like autonomy, things like wellness and safety and vision and values. If we're not measuring that stuff, that's the stuff that's, you know, eating sport for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So you know, I have a few other things to share, but I'll just pause there and maybe ask the two of you, you know, what's on your wish list as we start to, you know, wind down our conversation together around safe sport. I feel like we are all in agreement that safety matters. Will, you said it earlier around hi the hierarchy of needs. So, you know, you as parents, maybe we'll, we'll start there as parents, what do you think are the most important things that we need to ensure as sport continues to make safety a priority? I think we'll need another hour or so to go through that answer, Dina. Um, 
I'll, I'll say this, and, and my kids are not quite at the level of engaging in sport yet, but you don't know, expect that'll happen in the near future. You know, it, it is making sure that we understand why sport, that they're there to have fun, that they're there to learn values. I'm sure if we look back on, on growing up and whatever activities we were engaged with, I can think of you know the valuable life lessons that we learn within the sport context, most notably that it's okay to fail. And I think sometimes when we have this perspective on high performance, that there's no opportunity to fail. And there's, you know, there's a lot of research on this, that when we look at allowing individuals to grow, does inc- it has to include that you're know, reaching and missing and not hitting the target. And then that's okay. So just having that supportive environment, which does absolutely include a level of safety, for me, that's that's my long-term hope for sport as a sector, not just at the high performance level. I'll add, you know, this other thing, and you mentioned this about teaching. I think one of the challenges that we've had in the sector, and I think we're moving towards this alignment, is having a less uh, jurisdictional fracturing. I don't know. I may have just made up a term. I'm sure there's a better one out there. But just making sure that we have consistency across the board. And that's what OSIC is trying to do through the UCCMS, because it is going to be a system that applies across the sector. But there are certainly elements that we are missing right now within that to make it fully effective. And, and we can go on on this for quite some time. But you know, most notably is how individuals know when there has been an incident reported and someone has found to have committed a safe sport violation. So you know, from, from sort of maybe the more philosophical side in terms of the enjoyment of sport, but also just the practical legal side. Those for me are some of the two key aspects that we want to have um, in safe sport going forward. And we're not there yet with the development of registry and uh, reporting so people understand what has happened if there are incidents of maltreatment that have been found to have occurred. Yeah. I look at it two ways, Dean and Will. As you've alluded to, Will, you know, even, even myself as an athlete and a coach and an official, I've worn all three hats. I sit here today after a 35 year career and in, in all of the above and say, and remember the good times, remember the fun times. I, I couldn't tell you what tournaments we won or lost or placed or how many points I scored or how fast I was in the, in the water in a, in a swimming competition. I remember the experiences and the friends and the and the great coaching relationships that we established. So I absolutely agree that that's the fundamentals. As we've already alluded to, 10% of athletes will become high performance and maybe less than 1% will actually become international stars, whether it's Olympians or, or, or professionals. So the, the chances are so minor. So why are we focused so much on the 1% or less than 1% and, and we kind of let the 99% go away. So for my kids, I want them to love sport, have a great experience. As you've said, we'll learn those highs and lows and how to deal with time management, adverse adversity, and, and working hard. Those are the great things that come with sport. You know, professionally, I think you're right too. I would love to see sport become a little bit more pan-Canadian. As I like to say, being a good person in BC should be the same as being a good person in Nova Scotia. And whether that's through your province or territory, that alignment happens, or whether it's in your sport, I think it's really crucial that we're all on the same page and and have that same learning curve to understand how to manage it. And the last thing I'll say on this is I do love the idea of centralized reporting. That way, everybody in the system or everybody within that sports silo knows what's happening. 
I'm not suggesting that the national body has to manage every complaint that comes within their sector, but I do think it's important that they all know about it and have unanimity or a meeting of the minds of, of how to manage it across their sport. So that's a, a pretty big wish list. And Will, I'd, I'd love to get your take on, you know, if you had one big wish for the Safe Sport project this year, what would that be? And I'm going to give you a, a moment to think about it because it's there, there may be so many things, or maybe, maybe you can buy three vowels, you can buy three wishes, but you know, what are three things that you think are going to be the difference maker in 2023? And I'm going to answer my own question around, you know, what are the top things that I would want the agents, the actors inside a sport to think about? And, and when I, I talk to teams or parents or coaches or athletes, I, I, I present the diamond model. Because too often we talk about the coach athlete parent relationship and then, but we forget about the administrators and, you know, there's only about roughly 250,000 administrators that serve in sport. The rest are volunteers, right? And we can't do sport without volunteers in our current structure. And so when we think about the parent coach administrator athlete diamond, what are the kinds of things that we need each of them to say yes to? So when I think of parents, I think parents need to really reflect and ensure that they're self-aware, that they're not placing too much burden or too much pressure on their kids inside their sport experience. And I think the second thing a parent can do is ask their child, how do you feel about the coach? And explore that a little bit more. So that the parent can ensure that the kid is being supported and, and feeling safe with the coach. For coaches, I think the big question for me that I'd love coaches to reflect on is, how do you know that your coaching style is working for your athletes? What are you checking for? Because too often coaches are coaching to the level that they think is needed and to the performance outcomes that we talked about. But they have to remember the vast majority of coaches are volunteers in this country, and most of the people they're coaching are children. So how many of these coaches are trained in child development theory? And until we remember that the little people that we're coaching are little people first and not athletes, there's a risk there that we're going to, you know, put some some pressure on them. And that's where the relationship and abuse of power and all of these other things can get in the way. For the leaders, I would invite them to really start thinking about their leadership philosophy. Are they going to sign up for a management by values approach where they're going to use their values and that of the organization to defend their decisions? And if we're not using that kind of philosophy where we, we defer back to a management by instruction, the old days of jump, and then people would say how high, or management by objective, I'm doing it because we said we were going to do it in our strategic plan. Those are partial management and leadership choices. So we need to become more, I think, holistic in our, in our leadership practice. And then finally, for me, as someone who coached athletes and who's a parent and, and who spends a lot of time, you know, in leadership development with people, my first question to them is, are you having fun? What is it about this sport experience that is nourishing you? What are your big dreams so that I, as your coach, can calibrate to that? And how can your coaches and your parents and your teammates better support you? I, thanks for that, Dina. I, I, 
maybe my list will be a little bit more blunt in point form. I think first is that return to principle, not politics. I think right now a lot of the struggles is that people are feeling they have to be reactive to stay ahead of the social media or, or, or the political realm and just making sure that we can all have a collective deep breath and come back to say, what are we trying to accomplish? And make sure we're focusing on that, which is making sports safe and making sport fun. Two, and I think this echoes some of the points you made, Dina, is that there's an extension of good faith to those who are working within the sports sector, because by and large, most people are trying to move sport in the right direction and to just have that conversation, that recognition that well, people may not have the skill sets or they may not be fully qualified or they may not be perfect, but by and large, the vast, vast majority of people are working good faith to try to make this better. So to just and just extend that, especially for the sport administrators who are having to navigate, uh, you know, tasks that require a skill set they maybe didn't even contemplate that they needed when they jumped into the sport world. Yeah, like I think my hope is that we get to the maybe the last one is that we get to the point where we're able to have a dialogue about why we love sport and we'll have what we're able to move forward. And I think when we talk about a crisis or what you talked about the the previous inquiries. Right now, I think the conversation, I hope, will shift to not just how do we address safe sport, but why do we just how do we make sport better as a whole, not just simple, simply one aspect of it. So those would be, I don't know if those qualify as a wish list, but you know, from a principal perspective, those those are some of my hopes for the next, you know, 10, 11 months. Well, I know you'll appreciate this. So we'll we'll leave that as the last substantive word. Lawyer, you know, as a lawyer, I'm sure you like to get it in the last word. So I'll, I'll let you have that today. I really want to thank you for coming on today to take the plunge with us as a guest uh, on Sportopia. To learn more about our blogs, check uh, the link below in the episode notes. And thank you for listening. We look forward to not only sharing our vision of Sportopia, but also collaborating with our community to elevate sport. And the best way to do that, to have your say in Sportopia, is to either email us at hello at sportlaw.ca or on social media at sportlaw.ca to let us know what you want to hear next. We want to ensure that this is a conversation and a dialogue. So let us know what you want us to talk about. And who knows, maybe you'll be our next guest on Sportopia. Thank you so much, Will, and to you, Steve, and our amazing producer who's working fervently behind the scenes to make this, uh, this podcast happen. So thank you, Taylor, for all your hard work. See you next time. <laughs>